It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Hey, the National Football League, which just struggled through the COVID season, has just hit the freaking jackpot. A new deal, television deal. That's where the NFL gets most of its money. Uh, nearly doubles its revenue to $10 billion a season. It's an 11-year deal, so it's worth $113 billion. But the really interesting part is Amazon. That You know, usually the way these things work is in the old days it used to be, you know, CBS got some of the games and NBC got some of the games and that was it. And then ABC got in the game, so to speak, with Monday Night Football. And then, of course, cable came along and so they got some of the contracts and Fox gets some of the contracts, uh, Fox Broadcast Television, that is. But now the Thursday night games will be carried, will be streamed by Amazon. This is a whole new wrinkle and a whole new revenue stream, so to speak, uh, obviously. And Amazon has been doing some streaming. So a game, uh, was it last year? Uh, yeah, last year, 49ers and the Cardinals, uh, seen by an estimated 11 million viewers. So it's not just like, you know, in the old days, it'd be like, well, we're putting something online and, you know, a million people watch, two million people watch. I mean, this is a lot of how people get their news and sports now. So a uh, huge uh, win for Jeff Bezos, huge win for the NFL, uh, more ways to see football games if you're a football fan. And now all you have to do is worry about the player, keeping the players healthy, right? Uh, hope you're heading into a good weekend. We're getting ready for Media Buzz on Sunday, 11 Eastern. Hope you'll have a chance to tune in. Uh, another little item here that caught my eye. So yesterday was the day that President Biden announced. Remember, he had set a goal, $100 million. Uh, vac- uh, doses of the vaccine in 100 days. Well, hit it early after 58 days. So given a speech um, with Kamala Harris to sort of, you know, pat themselves on the collective back. And that's part of politics. That's what you do. So given this milestone, and yes, you could certainly say it was a low bar because we were already at a rate that would almost guarantee uh, reaching 100 million in 100 days. Now we're at about two and a half million doses a day, or maybe a bit more than that. That's good news, but it still feels frustratingly, maddeningly slow for all the people who are trying to get this vaccine who are not in the priority groups. Anyway, Biden is given this speech and he says, uh, and what do you think the media focused on? It's this quote. He was talking about a nurse telling them that each shot is like administering a dose of hope. But the Quote starts out with with uh, Biden saying, now, when President Harris and I took a virtual tour of a vaccination center in Arizona not a lot long ago, ding, 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 Twitter just absolutely explodes because he said President Harris. Okay, he slipped, he screwed up, he gaffed. He does that from time to time. But the reaction is interesting. So part of the reaction, mostly coming from people on the right who don't like Joe Biden, is, oh, my God. God, this guy can't string two sentences together. He doesn't even know where he is. He thinks Harris is president. He is getting uh, advanced Alzheimer's and all of that. Now, let me just stop there and say, anybody who watched Biden's interview with George Stephanopoulos on a whole range of topics saw a guy who certainly knows how to answer questions and is pretty sharp on the substance of issues. Same thing with the long rambling town hall with Anderson Cooper. I mean, he wasn't exactly grilled, but he was drilling down into the details of healthcare policy and all of that. So I just find, no, look, he's 78 years old. Is he as sharp as he was four years ago? Is he as sharp as he was when he was vice president? Is he as sharp as he was 10 or 15 years ago? Of course not. 
and he's always made a lot of gaffes, even when he was young. But, you know, so the other uh, part of the reaction, some of this, you know, just sheer mockery is, well, this gives up the game. You know, they had a deal and he'll be gone by Christmas or by the summer or, you know, pick your name and Kamala Harris will take over. And that's why they ran together. It was all about giving Kamala Harris the presidency. Well, I don't think Joe Biden's going anywhere the next four years, unless he runs into obviously very serious health problems, which we all hope the president of the United States does not. And then on the other side, the liberal side, it's just like, come on, give the guy a break. But, you know, because of his propensity for gaffes and because of his septuagenarian status, hey, I got through that. Um, It's kind of like after Dan Quayle misspelled potato and then everything he did that could be seen as sort of slightly dumb got played up by the media. You know, every time that Biden makes a miss step or misquote or just steps on a soundbite, it's going to be a story. And probably he's got to learn to live with that. All right, let's get a little more serious here, which number one, uh, I want to follow up since President Biden and Vice President Harris uh, will be in the Atlanta area today meeting with Asian American advocates. Uh, Steve Abrams is in there. So now that a lot of people, I'm sure, will write it off as being just hanging out with a bunch of Democrats. But I guess there's a bipartisan congressional delegation uh, going with the Secretary of Homeland Security to that part of Georgia as well. Uh, This is still very, very much in the news in the wake of the awful killings of eight people, six of them Asian American women. So I wanted to start off by pointing out some comments from Andrew Yang, who, of course, ran for president last year and now is running for mayor of New York City. I don't really know. It's a multi-candidate field. There's no clear front runner. So I don't know whether he has a shot or not. But clearly, uh, at a forum, uh, he had a chance to talk about his own experience with racism. And Yang said, I've been Asian all my life. He he's originally, or his family's originally from Taiwan. And I remember vividly growing up with this constant sense of invisibility, mockery, and disdain a sense that you cannot be American if you have an Asian face. But this has metastasized into something new and deadly and virulent and hateful. And he, of course, is right. Um, And I think we're all learning more about this because, as I pointed out yesterday, uh, there aren't that many Asian Americans in prominent positions in the media. I mean, if if I say to you right now, okay, name five Asian Americans in the media. Okay, what, what would you think of? You might think of Lisa Ling. You might think of Connie Chung. Uh, my old com- colleague John Yang works over the PBS NewsHour, but you'd have to stop and think. Now, obviously, there are people working behind the scenes or not television stars and so forth, but uh, because they don't tend to rise to the highest position in politics, and yes, Kamala Harris is a bit of an exception because her mother is from India, so she is partly Asian-American and she partly um, is obviously a black American with a father from Jamaica. Um, but the New York Times, you know, went out and talked to a lot of people. Uh, and I just find it interesting what they have to say. And, and this is not something I would have known 48 hours ago. There is evidence that most of the hate directed at Asian Americans is directed at women. Um, and so there's a, a quote here from Jen Fang. She's the founder of an Asian American feminist blog. And she says, most of the hate directed at women, people on here literally debating whether what happened at the Atlanta spas was a misogynistic attack against women or a racist attack against Asians. What if, wait for it, it was both. Uh, Helen Zia, an activist who is a 
made a career of studying Asian American violence, says that law enforcement and society in general tends not to really understand how racism and hate and prejudice is directed toward Asian Americans, and certainly not understand how it's directed toward Asian American women. So the instant reaction is generally to discount and dismiss that. Um, it also goes on, the piece itself goes on to say it's a long history of misogyny and violence directed specifically at Asian women by men of all races, including Asian men. I hadn't quite thought of that. Asian American women have long been stereotyped as sexually submissive, portrayed in popular culture as exotic lotus blossoms, and manipulative dragon ladies, or as inherently superior to other women in a way that erases their individuality. They've been subjected to backlash for any failure to conform to those stereotypes and trolled for choosing non-Asian partners. That's interesting. A lot of ethnic groups have faced that when you marry outside your faith, your ethnic group, your race. Uh, some other people you know, don't like that. Um, and, you know, the piece points out that there is a lot of economic inequality among Asian Americans, but they're often assumed to be financially successful because of the, the image of a model minority. And many of them are very successful, but not all. Uh, the director of the National Asian Pacific uh, American Women's Forum said that when she first came to the U.S. to attend college in 2000, she was stunned, dumbfounded, horrified. By the way, she was frequently approached by male strangers who professed to love Korean women. Here's the quote. It is the me so horny, I love you long time in like weird accents. And oh, are you Korean? I love Korea, she said. Adding that she began to wonder if American men were crazy. They would go into this whole thing about how they served in the military in Korea and how they had this amazing Korean girlfriend that was just like me. And will I be their girlfriend? I can see where that would change your whole outlook on America, your whole outlook on, on bias. Um, this woman goes on to say, I'm telling you, after the murders, most of us didn't sleep well last night because this is what we had feared all along. We were afraid that the objectification and hypersexualization of our bodies was going to lead to death. And obviously, you know, these were massage parlors where obviously some degree of sex was going on. Uh, and I really think this is just a huge national wake-up call. I'm glad the president and vice president are going there. I'm glad the media are focused more on it. I think it's been a real collective failure on the part of my profession that this has not gotten more attention. I mean, as I said yesterday, violence against blacks, violence against Jews, violence against Muslims. You have these symbols, the noose, the swastika. For Asian Americans, there is no such symbol. And there always is this debate. Well, was that a hate crime? Was it just a robbery of a, of a small business that happened to be run? Uh, by Asian Americans, or was it uh, actually aimed at women, so actually it's more misogyny than uh, hate crime. Um, again, the law enforcement people can decide the hate crime thing, and the guy, the idiot who works for the police department that said the guy was having a bad day, uh, he's been no longer going to be a spokesman on the case. But I think this has obviously opened up some very deep wounds that the rest of us who are not Asian American are learning have been festering there for a long time. And even the most successful Asian Americans, people like Andrew Yang, um, are having to say, you know, well, how did they feel growing up? And how they felt discriminated against, or not quite accepted. Invisible is often the word that is used. So I'm learning along with everybody else. All right, number two. 
President Biden yesterday asking members of Congress to exact permanent protections for uh, the Dreamers, as the Washington Post puts it, immigrants without legal status who came to the United States as children, a path that would formalize their footing in a country they have known as home for years. Now, I think, you know, the Dreamers first got named and protected uh, by President Obama. And I think it was kind of a brilliant political stroke in an area, namely illegal immigration, that is so difficult because, look, if you came here, I guess at the time it was designated for, was it kids under 18 or under 16, not sure the exact age cutoff, who were brought here through no, they had no choice in the matter. They were brought here illegally by their parents. And so they went to school here. They grew up here. Uh, many came to consider themselves American. They adopted American culture. And they, they didn't make the decision to break the law. Their parents did. And so Barack Obama said, we're not going to deport them. And at first, that was very controversial. What happened was there was a lot of public support from that. And um, even when, when Donald Trump took over and there was this constant back and forth about would he take legal action to terminate the temporary, remember it was always temporary under Obama because he did it unilaterally, not with an act of Congress, to terminate the temporary legal status of the Dreamers and then subject to potential deportation. Um, I always felt he was never going to do that. It was going to be really unpopular. Uh, so what he tried to do was to trade it. I'll make a deal with the Democrats. And if you give us, you know, tougher border enforcement and measures that are to our liking on illegal immigration, uh, we will certify the status of the Dreamers. And I, I thought in 2017 that deal was there to be had. And of course, given the polarized uh, situation, the deal was never struck. Nor was it struck in 2018, 2019, or 2020. Well, now um, Biden is, is taking steps, but more importantly, the House yesterday passed a bill ensuring a pathway to citizenship for these dreamers. Um, but of course, it's thought to be dead on arrival in the Senate. Why? Because of, in effect, the filibuster. At least 10 Republican senators would be needed in that 50 50 Senate to pass most bills, including even a measure to protect the dreamers. And that's not going to happen in this polarized environment. Um, and Lindsey Graham, speaking for the Republicans, Lindsey Graham, who was much, much, once much more moderate on illegal immigration back when he was part of the Gang of Six or the Gang of Eight and working with John McCain and trying to, working with George W. Bush, trying to get some kind of a compromise on illegal immigration, uh, says the Democrats have a choice to make. Do they want to control the border? and set the conditions for an immigration solution, or do they just want to say, I was the opposite of Trump? Right now, they're on a glide path not to be able to get anything done on immigration and have a political nightmare on their hands. So Biden said in a Twitter post, it's long past time Congress gives a path to citizenship for dreamers who strengthen our country and call our nation home, and urge lawmakers to come together to find long-term solutions to our entire immigration system. So what's most likely to happen is the Dreamers will continue to stay here, even though they will have that sort of uncertain legal status, because there is no political will in either party to kick them out. And there is broad public support for protecting those who were brought here as kids through no fault of their own. They had nothing to say about it. They were children. Some of them were very young children. At the same time, I think, unfortunately, as George W. Bush failed, as Barack Obama failed, as Donald Trump failed to get comprehensive immigration reform, Joe Biden is likely to fail as well. 
because you'd have to have a coming together uh, of measures at the border. And by the way, you know, there is an absolute mess at the border, a humanitarian crisis at the border. And, it, and the Biden administration did help cause it. Uh, because what Biden viewed as a compassionate approach actually became a flashing neon signal that if you are an unaccompanied minor and you come here and you break the law, you know, we're not going to turn you back and we'll house you and we'll take care of you. And we'll give you a chance to apply for asylum. So in effect, his please don't come is interpreted by the, the human traffickers, the smugglers and the families who are desperate to have their kids have a better way of life, as well as migrant families who are adults. Come anyway and take your chances, and maybe you will be able to get asylum. Uh, so the whole thing is just a mess. But I do think the fact that the House passed this bill for the Dreamers, which I believe the House, the Democratic House has done before, is an important symbolic step. But if the Senate, a compromise can't be found that could pass the Senate, it ends up being meaningless. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. Number three, this is an interesting debate, I think. And it has to do with Joe Biden and culture wars, because there is a consensus now in the mainstream media that Biden is being shrewd by concentrating on COVID, by concentrating on the $2 trillion bill he got through, by concentrating on the economy, and by staying away from a lot of involvement in these culture war issues, of which immigration, I think, has to be counted as one. Uh, and so here's a column uh, by an old colleague of mine, Tom Edsel, very smart political scientist, political writer. Uh, writing in the New York Times, who says that by concentrating on the COVID legislation and by refusing to engage fractious issues in public, calculating that deprived of oxygen, their strength will fade, Biden is doing a smart thing. Uh, he uh, Edsel goes on to say the sheer magnitude of the funds released by the American Rescue Plan, the White House's gambling, will shift voters' attention away from controversies over Dr. Seuss who can use which bathroom and critical race theory. So far, says Edsel, the strategy is working. That by Biden's strategy is to lower the volume on culture war issues by refusing to engage on the theory that in politics, silence saps attention. Exemplified by the president's two-month refusal to uh, hold a news conference, which I don't agree with. Uh, and therefore, it's the press rather than the chief executive who determines what gets talked about. Now, that view is not shared by many on the right. And so here's a piece today in National Review. It says, starts out by saying, of course, the uh, COVID $2 trillion bill, relief bill is popular. It turns out that when you have an entire media infrastructure devoted to insisting a bill will end child poverty, fill their wallets, and potentially bring about world peace, people tend to have a pretty rosy understanding of it. Uh, but uh, this piece in National Review says the media are, and Biden's media boosters are not mentioning that the bill also has 15 weeks of paid leave offered to federal workers. The billions of dollars, the actual figure is $86 billion spent on bailing out uh, state pension systems. Well, it's state pension systems. I'm thinking of the union pension plans. That's the $86 billion. Um, and, and then it go, the National Review goes on to say, look at all the things that Biden has done. He's issued an executive order to force schools to allow transgender athletes to compete in sports that conform with their gender identity rather than biological reality. Uh, is that not part of the culture war? How about backing the Equality Act and the Democrat police, Democratic Police Reform Bill, which all but calls for police to treat individuals unequally under the law, lest they be liable for racial profiling? Obviously, this is a conservative point of view. Uh, I'm just telling you, obviously, there is another point of view on some of these. 
Um, but the bottom line here is, oh, Biden offered an order review of Betsy DeVos's comprehensive Title IX regulations with the aim of making due process on campus uh, a tertiary concern of the federal government. Also objects to the nomination of Javier Becerra, who was uh, confirmed yesterday as HHS secretary. Uh, so National Review writer concludes, Biden is very interested in waging the culture war. He just wants it to be a shadow conflict, one he can use to quietly remake the country's social fabric. Um, but that's the thing. On policies, yeah, sure, of course. On immigration, on Title IX, all this stuff. You could say the Biden administration is fighting some culture war battles. But Joe Biden himself is not out front and center. It's maybe it's the education department or other uh, parts of government that are doing this. But as we learn from Donald Trump, who was very much interested and remains very interested today in fighting culture wars, and you know he would get into the NFL anthem protests and all that stuff, and it was good politics for him. It played uh, very well with his supporters. But when a president uses Twitter, uses his, his bully pulpit, uses the megaphone, gives speeches, talking about these culture war issues, he elevates it to a major part of his presidency. Joe Biden does not want to do that. It's also the reason he rarely responds to Donald Trump. He says, I don't want to talk about Donald Trump. He did this at the end of the campaign. He did this during the transition, and he's doing it now. So that has the effect of tamping down at least the big media spotlight for these culture war issues. And in my view, you know, Biden got elected on one thing, maybe two things, COVID and the economy, and he wasn't Donald Trump. And so I think at least for now, he wants to stick with that. And, and he's got a pretty good popularity rating, over 50%, not bad in this polarized environment. Kind of a, a footnote to this, um, Dan Bongino is a conservative guy, he's a Fox News contributor, and also is a talk radio host who I guess is going to, in some markets, is going to be tapped for that noon to three slot that was occupied in, in, you know, across America by Rush Limbaugh. Uh, he gave an interview to Business Insider, and here's what he says from his conservative point of view. I think Biden is a disaster for the, the country, and his ideas are an atrocity. But he's boring. He's just boring, Bongino said. Biden, not only do I think he's a terrible president these last few months, actually six weeks, it's just terrible for talk radio. It's been a real chore the last few months since we've lost a Donald Trump, who has a personality the size of Texas, to go from that to this. Biden is boring, and again, I think he's terrible. But if you want to cover it in a way that people find interesting without just saying every day, Biden's terrible, that's not a show. And I think that's very candid admission. And, you know, I do think, you know, Saturday Night Live could find ways to make fun of him, the late night comics and all of that. But Biden doesn't want to be all that fascinating. He doesn't want to be front and center in the culture wars. He doesn't want to be a lightning rod. For some presidents, being a lightning rod is a good political strategy. For Joe Biden, it is not. But it has left many conservatives kind of having to fight the culture war battles without Biden making himself a big target. Now, you can say, look, he's the president. He's responsible for everything the administration does, and that's fine. But the fact is, because he doesn't personalize and because he, with some exceptions, um, doesn't use really harsh language in criticizing his political opponents, that's why I thought when he said that certain couple of GOP governors were being were engaging in Neanderthal thinking in terms of lifting COVID restrictions too early, I thought that was so off-brand for Biden. It reminded me when George H.W. Bush was president. He was running against Bill Clinton and Al Gore in 92. And at one point he said, uh, he called them a couple of bozos. Now, for anybody else, that would have been mild. But for him, uh, kind of the kinder, gentler Republican, 
it didn't ring true. And Barbara Bush told them to stop it, to cut it out and stop using uh, that kind of terminology. That's why I thought Neanderthal thinking was a mistake for Joe Biden. And it's why people like Dan Bongino right now, and this will change over the coming months, but right now find Biden too boring to be a suitable target, at least for the radio. And I would say it applies to cable news as well. All right, number four. Big hearing with Anthony Fauci yesterday in the Senate. Got into a heated exchange with Rand Paul. Um, Rand Paul challenged Dr. Fauci about whether people can get reinfected with COVID-19. And this whole business, and Fauci says it's better to wear two masks, uh, is just theater, says the senator from Kentucky. Uh, Ron Paul says to Fauci, "If if you've had the vaccine and you're wearing two masks, isn't that theater? Um, here we go again with the theater, Fauci says. He always gets into it with Rand Paul. By the way, Rand Paul a year ago said to Fauci, you know, nobody thinks there's going to be a second wave. You're just engaging in scare money. Well, there was a second wave and a third wave. Anyway, Fauci says, let's get down to the facts. Um, mutated versions of the virus can have an effect on all people, including those who have already been vaccinated or infected with the original strain of COVID-19, which uh, Fauci referred to as the wild type. I agree with you that very likely you would have protection from wild type, at least for six months if you're infected. But we in our country now have variants that are circulating. When you talk about reinfection you don't, and you don't key in the concept of variants, that's an entirely different ballgame. And that's a good reason for a mask. Uh, but Paul says, you've been vaccinated. You parade around in two masks for show. You can't get it again. There's virtually 0% chance you're going to get it. Now, Paul is a doctor. Rand Paul is a physician, but he's not an infectious disease expert, as Fauci is. Uh, Masks are not theater, Fauci says. Masks are protective. So now that more people are getting vaccinated, and I'm very grateful for that, and you see, I guess it's about 40 million have had two doses, and it needs to be a lot more and a lot more quickly. And it won't be till around May 1st, although some states are are going to do it sooner now, where people who are under 65 and don't have pre-existing conditions who aren't frontline workers or health care workers are going to be at least eligible to try to get the COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, and look, Fauci makes sense. At the same time, you know, you got to offer some reward for getting vaccinated. You're not going to convince, uh, particularly the more conservative people who don't want to do it. If you got to get vaccinated, I still think it makes sense in public places, at least for now, to wear a mask because you can still carry it and give it to someone else, even though you yourself don't get sick. But at the same time, if, if everything is restricted and you can't hug your grandchildren or whatever, you're reducing the incentive for people to get the vaccination. And so let's be sensible about this. All right, finally, number five. I've talked before. You probably know about the woman, Alexi McCammon. She's an MSNBC contributor. She had been an Axios reporter. She was tapped to be editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue. Well, now she's out. She has stepped down before even taking the job. She got torpedoed by her own racist tweets. And by the way, this has more resonance today. Some of those tweets were about Asian Americans, talking about slanty eyes and that sort of thing. Nobody's defending that. She's not defending that. It was horrible stuff. But she was a teenager. What happened is the staff of Teen Vogue, which, of course, is such a paragon of exemplary journalism. One of the headlines today is Billie Eilish's green hair is officially over. Something we obviously needed to know. Um, The staff went nuts and wrote a letter to management and said, we can possibly have this woman as our editor-in-chief, because 10 years ago, when she was like 17, she wrote these horrible things. Now, Alexi McCammon had already 
taken down those tweets in 2019 and apologized. She apologized twice during this process. And finally, I guess she realized, maybe Condé Nast realized, that it was just not going to work. And so she said that she and Condé Nast had reached a mutual agreement that she would not take this job. Now here's what she has to say about it. McCammon says, I became a journalist to help lift up stories and voices of our most vulnerable communities as a young woman of color. She's African-American. That's part of the reason I was so excited to lead the Teen Vogue team in its next chapter. My past tweets have overshadowed the work I've done to highlight the people and issues I care about. And so she and Condé Nast have decided to part company. Um, look, it just drives me crazy. There's no statute of limitations. If you're a teenager and you do dumb stuff, you say dumb s, you can't get a, a good job in the future. Somebody's going to unearth it because you weren't smart enough to delete it. And look, she was stupid. Of course she was stupid. But she was a teenager. We all do dumb things as teenagers. And just the people, the, these young staff members at Teen Vogue just sound so self-righteous despite, wouldn't accept her apologies, absolutely unacceptable uh, because she once did this as a teenager and she is just not woke enough to be the head of our August publication. But more importantly, Condé Nast had to back down because Condé Nast could have said, screw you, we think she's qualified, we think she's sufficiently apologized for these decade-old tweets, and she's going to be your new editor. You're going to have to live with it. No, what happened is it's exactly like what happened at the New York Times. When A.G. Sulzberger originally backed his editorial page editor, James Bennett, for publishing that Tom Cotton op-ed online only, Republican senator. And ultimately, the staff was so upset that he was fired. Bennett was fired. So in two different instances now, the younger, more liberal staffers, obviously much smaller at a place like Teen Vogue, rose up in their left-wing anger and got two giant media corporations, the New York Times Company and Condé Nast, to back down, to back away from personnel decisions that had already been made. What does that tell you about the state of journalism today? It tells you these corporations are so worried about being considered insufficiently woke, about being dragged on social media, that they will act against their better judgment and let, you know, to use the, the cliche loosely, the inmates run the asylum. So they're not really in charge anymore. It's the young, woke, liberal, sometimes minority staffers who are in charge. And even if you're a minority yourself, as Alexi McCammon is, she couldn't get this job. And I just think that's a shame. I just think... Not so much for her, you know, she'll, she's an MSNBC contributor, she'll go somewhere else, that's fine. But for journalism, it, it, it promotes self-censorship, it promotes a, a culture of not wanting to get out there with controversial ideas, it, it promotes the idea that only somebody who's led a totally bland life and has never said or uttered or written anything controversial is qualified to be a journalist or certainly a leader of journalists, and that's a shame. And that is my rant for today. Uh, again, I hope you have a great weekend. I hope you get a chance to see Media Buzz. Hope you'll subscribe. We're trying to build a little bit of a community here. We'll see you back here Monday with more Buzz Meter. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.